Okay, okay, okay. It's really cool. Thank you so much. It's so special. Um, all right. Here we go. I am preaching a sermon, right? Do you mind if I just scroll a little bit longer? No. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, okay. I wonder if you know the difference between VR and AR. Right? VR, virtual reality. AR, augmented reality. Who thinks they know the difference between VR and AR? Hands up. Uh, yeah, actually, probably just as many of you as this morning, even though there was a lot of more people in that service. Um, Pastor Marshall knows now because I embarrassed him up front and he had no idea this morning. Let's see if you, let's see if you remember. Come up, come on down. <laughs> I want to know if you actually were listening and know what VR and AR, what the difference is. Go, Pastor Marshall, go. Uh, so, augmented reality means like added to reality uh, which is, yeah, I forget. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, how's that different to virtual reality? You're, you're on the right track. How's that different to VR? So, so virtual reality is uh, like a different world, like a different made-up world. Okay. And I think, was it Pokemon Go? Or the other one? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> that, that was pretty good. That's not too bad. Um, just remember, you had to use dials to dial phones when Marshall was born. Um, sorry, same when I was born too. Don't worry about that. Okay, um, yes, if you, if you want to know the difference between VR and AR, there it is. So um, uh, augmented reality is uh, when the computer, it's, they're both based on computer and graphics and so on, but it's superimposing images onto the real world. So uh, Pokemon Go is your classic example of um, AR. Uh, VR, um, usually you'll see people wear glass, you know, those kind of big goggles. So um, if you've seen the movie Ready Player One, that's kind of virtual reality. Um, so there you go, Pokemon Go. For those, anyone still, apart from Nelson, still play Pokemon <laughs> Go? Okay. Now, in case you're wondering, AR, augmented reality, it has applications um, not just in gaming. This is a really exciting thing. So in medicine and surgery, um, they use it to help doctors operate. So in a way that they can see, in inverted commas, see under the skin. So that's pretty cool, isn't it? Uh, engineering and education, you can overlay instructions to help you interact with the world, calculate things. Um, even IKEA, did you know this? You can go on the IKEA app right now. Don't do it now. But um, you can do that and you can imagine, well, not imagine, you can superimpose their furniture in your room so you can see what it looks like. This is already something you can do. Now, God's Word, which for us is in the Bible, is not virtual reality. It's augmented reality. It's not virtual reality. And the God's Word doesn't give you, or the Bible doesn't give you some sort of mythological fantasy world that doesn't actually exist. And it doesn't give you a separate reality that's apart from the world that we live in. No, God's Word is like augmented reality. It's giving us a new way of seeing the world we are in so that we can see it how God sees it. In a sense, it's actually giving us the proper way of seeing the world. It's making the world more real, not less real. Now, I mention that because today I, I believe that God wants the truth of Christmas to do just that, to augment our reality. That we want to see the world through Christmas as we prepare for Christmas. Because once you do see the world through Christmas, you'll never see it the same again. 
Now, we're going to be looking at a very familiar part of the Bible. One of the dangers of John 3.16, which uh, if, if you're in America especially, you'll see that people will write it and put it on signs at sporting events. So Tim Tebow made it really, really famous. But um, it's so familiar that sometimes because it's so familiar, we, we, we just kind of let it wash over us. We don't really get wowed by it. And I, today, I want us to be wowed by it in a in a way that allows it to augment our reality. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to let John 3.16, which really is about the coming of Jesus, isn't it? God sending Jesus throughout Christmas, really, to change the way we see the world. So let's pray and ask God to do that. Father God, um, we ask that you would give us, um, or as the kids have sung, you may open the eyes of our heart. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know you better. And today, I ask that by your spirit, you can... Um, really help us see this world in the way that you see it. Rebuke the way that we see the world. A lot of times we see the world in a way that is not echoing your heart and reflecting your desire. And so change that, Father. And this Christmas especially, help us to see it as you see it. For Jesus' sake, amen. So let's look at these uh, very familiar verses. And I want to point out three things um, that help us see the world differently. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Firstly, follow on your outlines if you want, on the inside of the bulletins. First thing, God loves the world and he wants to save it. It seems so obvious, right? But did you notice the verbs? Right? Three things it says about God and what he's doing, what he does. He loves, he gives, he saves, right? God loves, God gave, God saves. Now, again, this is a very familiar part of the Bible, so we need to pause and let it sink in. So let it sink in. How does God see his world? He loves it. He gives to it. He wants to save it. Now, God's love for the world here in John 3.16 is not so big because the world is so big. God's love for the world is so big because the world is so bad. You see, when John, the writer of this particular four biographies of Jesus' life in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the names of the people who wrote the biographies. Right? When John <clears throat> wrote his biography and he uses the word world, he does not mean it in, in a neutral sense. He doesn't mean the planet. Right? He doesn't just mean people. He means it in a negative sense. John chapter 1, verse 10, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And that's pretty consistently how John uses the idea of the world. And so when John 3.16 says, God loved the world that he gave us, God's love is so wonderful because the world isn't, not because the world is so big, the planet is so big, but because the world is so bad. The world rejected God, right? The world is the, the world that, that was made by him and yet wants nothing to do with him. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, hang on, I... I don't reject God. I've never openly rejected God. I might even be a believer in God. I'm, and I might even be slightly religious, but I haven't done anything that's really bad either. This isn't me. And the people around me are basically like me. They, they don't reject God mostly. They're pretty nice people. Well, you know what? The opposite of love, you've probably heard this, before. the opposite of love isn't hate. What is it? It's apathy or indifference. The opposite of love is indifference. Let's admit it, most Aussies simply don't care about God, really. We're indifferent. We ignore God. Or maybe we treat Him more like a genie in a bottle. We rub it when you need help. Twice a year, Easter, Christmas, all right? 
Now imagine if we treated our spouse, if you're married, or your parents the way that we treat God. And you would see that the opposite of love really is indifference. It's ignoring Him, and that's what the world is like. That's what we collectively, as people created by God, are like. And yet, here's the amazing thing, yet God loves the world. Yet God gave to the world. Yet God saves the world. And we need to, this afternoon, let that truth change or at least augment the way we see the world. This is AR, augmented reality. The way we see the world and especially the people of the world. Because let's be honest, we are often tempted, aren't we? Sometimes Christians are known to be or at least perceived to be ones who see the world in the opposite way. Some people think that Christians are always there just condemning, always judging. And if there is a God, He is like hellfire brimstone wants to destroy the world. And maybe you've even read sometimes high-profile Christians say things like, you know, the bushfires are, or this disaster is because punishment or for that sin. And, there you see, and, and, and the image is God is actually, on the whole, just really cranky at the world. Or maybe a lot of people's view is that God is, at best, indifferent about the world. Oh, the world is indifferent about him. He's indifferent about the world. He, he stands right back at a distance. He doesn't really care about it. He's not involved in it. And I hope you see that John 3.16 says, no, that's not reality. Reality is God loves, God gives, God saves. Now, a lot of you probably know Jesus' famous story of the prodigal son or the lost son. There's actually two sons, of course. The story goes, the youngest son, he... Uh, brings great shame and hurt to his father and his family by taking his inheritance before his father's dead, which in that day and age is pretty horrible. Uh, and he squanders it, uses it all up on uh, drink, drugs, and women, and all that kind of stuff, until he runs completely out of money. And he's desperate, and he's at the verge of starvation and death. And you remember in the story, um, he realizes his only chance of survival now is to go back to his dad. But do you remember in Jesus' story, he, he's really just hoping for the best. He does, you know, he, this is his last, last hope. He's hoping for the best that maybe his dad will at least be forgiving enough to, well, to, to have him back just as a servant. Not as a son. He couldn't hope for that. That's impossible in his mind after all he's done. Just maybe bring me as a worker, as a servant. I'll, I'll spend the rest of my life working it off for him. And that's the most he could hope for. And so he's nervous about heading back. And even as he's going back, he's you know, trying to rehearse the lines he would say to his dad in his head. But we know in the story, of course, that all this time his dad was what? Waiting out for him, longing for him, wanting to welcome him back. And when he does come back, his dad was more than happy to see him doesn't treat him like a servant, right? Doesn't just forgive him. He lavishes a welcome on him. That's unbelievably extravagant. Now, imagine if he knew that about his dad before he decided to turn back. He probably would have turned back much earlier. Now, compare that with the other son in the story. You remember him. After his brother comes back, not only is he unhappy, he shows that his view of his father is completely at odds with what his father is like. His view of his father is a father who is harsh, a father who is stingy, not generous, not loving, not giving, not forgiving. So we have two sons and two views of how the father in the story would react. And I wonder which son reflects your view of God in the world. 
Because John 3 tells us it's actually the welcoming father, the loving father, the giving father. That's the real father, not the father in the picture in the eyes of the older brother. See, in Christmas, we see that God's big message to the world is not no, but yes. Right? His big message to the world is not no, but yes. And that needs to augment our reality. It needs to change the way we see the world. Because if you think about it, what is most people's default position as they look at the world around them? And by the world here, I mean especially the people that they come across every single day. So think about for a moment all the people that you've come across maybe just this year, but that's a pretty big sample, maybe just even this last week. So you've got schools and universities for those who are studying. You've got workplaces for those who are at work. But also, you know, when you come across people on the trains or buses, the shops that you visit, the neighborhoods you live in, even the people that you don't meet in person but on social media as you um, troll through people's feeds, or maybe people that you read about or see on the news. What is our default position to people? I want to suggest to you our default position and almost everyone's default position is what? Judgment. Now, don't get me wrong here. I don't, there's two types of judgment. There's hard judgment and soft judgment. Um, I don't necessarily mean that all the time we're in hard judgment mode. Hard judgment is, you know, when you condemn someone. You see, and I think we do that. Okay, we do. Right? You read about someone, maybe someone on your Facebook feed, maybe someone you really dislike. Maybe you see someone, first impression is, I, this is not a person I want to know. That's hard judgment. Right? You condemn them. I don't want to know them. I think they're doing the wrong thing. Right? There's that. But that's not how we see everyone all the time, I hope. But still, there's something called soft judgment. Have a think about it. Why is it that of the people you come across in life every single day, there are some people that you choose to engage with, others you choose not to engage with? Have you thought about that? Why some neighbors and not others? Why some colleagues and not others? Why some shopkeepers and not others? Why some people on the bus and train but not others? And no, it's not just because some of us are more outgoing and some of us are more shy. Because even the outgoing ones, I can bet you that you don't engage in the same way with everyone, do you? So what makes us choose to move towards someone in friendship, have that conversation, decide to befriend them even if it's online, versus someone you're just like, no, I'm just going to keep my distance. What, what makes you do that? I want to suggest to you it's some form of soft judgment. That is, we've got to make a decision about whether this person is really worth my effort or time or energy, whether they add to my life. It's a little bit like a Marie Kondo on people. Is this a person that's going to spark joy in me? I mean, we do that, okay? It sounds crass. I don't think we do it in terms of money. Is that, gonna, that person going to pay me in some way or give me favors? No, no, no. But we do think, is that person going to add to my life in terms of joy or friendship or interest because they're interesting people or something? Do you see what I mean? But our reference point is me, us, and our basic default stance is judgment, soft judgment, but still judgment. Now, I realize that um, Karen and I, we celebrate our 20th anniversary, we went to Phuket, it was a lovely holiday, all that kind of stuff. Um, we obviously came across lots of people all the time. Phuket's very, very touristy. So there were heaps of fellow tourists of all ages, all kinds of people. 
Oh, the lots of Thai people, local Thai people we came across all the time. And here's the thing, right? There were some tourists we interacted with, some we didn't. There were some Thai people we interacted with, others we didn't. Right? And the ones we interacted with, you know, often we made a decision. They seemed nice. They seemed friendly. It was interesting to chat to them. And, but then there were others we actually stayed right away from. Because if you know Thailand, if you know um, Patong Beach, right, which is kind of near where we stayed, if you know Phuket or, you know, just think Bangkok, these kind of touristy areas in Thailand, there's some really unsavory elements there, yeah? You kind of know what I mean? There are some people there you know are there for the wrong reasons. And there are some local Thai people who are there um, in businesses that are the wrong reasons. And so there are some people who just there's no way I'm going to interact with them, right? I can see from a mile away the kind of person they are, the kind of people they want to... And we did that all the time. Now, I wonder if you do that on a day-by-day basis. Maybe it's not quite as obvious as when we were in Thailand, but yeah, I do this, the people I meet. I make decisions. I make soft judgments, sometimes hard judgments. Now, here, here's the thing. That's pretty usual. That's pretty default. But I wonder what would happen if we really let God's reality augment ours. See, once we understand Christmas, understand this, God's attitude to the world, and this is the real world we're living in, the broken Sometimes very corrupt, sometimes very unsavory world. But his stance towards the world is what? To love, to give, to save. How can that not change our attitude to the world and its people? See, all of a sudden, how can you see people as objects of your hard judgment or condemnation? Or even your soft judgment? That you got to... Question whether they add to your life or spark joy in your life before you decide to engage with them. Do you see? How can we still relate to the world in that way if we let God's view of the world augment ours? Because God had every reason to condemn the world. Remember verse 17? Right? He did not send His Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. See, the world and its people... It's a world that God loves so very much. And we must not see them in reference to me, but in reference to God and His love for them. That has got to augment the way that we see every single person that God puts in our path. That's the first one. Let's go to the next point. Right, so God loves the world and He wants to save it. Secondly, God's gift to the world is His only Son. Again, so obvious, but let's see how it augments our reality. Um, when John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, the so there does not mean so much. All right, That's probably how normally we'd read it. Um, it's true, He does love the world so much. It's not a question of whether that's true or not. It's just that in, in, in that verse... The so, actually, in the original, is a little bit clearer. It means in this way, okay? So it's better translated, God loves the world in this way. So we've got to ask, in what way? Well, it makes it obvious, right? How does He love the world? How do we see it? Well, He gave His one and only Son, which means that God's love, unlike a lot of our love, at least Hollywood love, is not sentimental. It's sacrificial. It's demonstrated. Or as Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God demonstrated His own love for us in this. 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, God showed his love by sending his one and only son. One and only son there, um, or in older translations, only begotten son. I'll tell you what it does not mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus was given birth to by God the Father, or in um, the belief of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, is that Jesus was somehow a, a lesser God or a created being, a lesser deity. That's not what it means there by Jesus being the only Son or the begotten Son. Because the Bible speaks about one God, but God's oneness is a complex oneness, not a simple oneness. oneness. And so one God in Trinity. Right? You've heard of the Trinity before? One God in Trinity. Three persons who are one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the point of the three persons in the one Godhead is from eternity to eternity, they were all in existence in the one Godhead. So the Son is not created or given birth to by the Father, but eternally the Son. And so the phrase one and only Son or only begotten Son does not mean that Jesus at some point came into being. No, it means here... Right, the only begotten son or the one and only son, it means the unique son. That's the kind of flavor. That's what it means, the unique son, the special son. Now, the reason why I say this is because John 3.16 actually uh, recalls a particular part of our Old Testament Bible story. The, 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 the Old Testament Bible, the first 39 books, which is the same as what uh, Jews believe as their scriptures. There's a particular part of that Old Testament story that John 3.16 is kind of making us think about. And it's the story of Abraham and a particular part in Abraham's life. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. The, the chapter, we won't read it, but it's in Genesis chapter 22. Right? God, remember, he tests Abraham. And he tests Abraham by asking Abraham to, to do what was really quite unfathomable and impossible. He, takes, he asked Abraham, remember, to take, and these are the words of Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to take your son your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and take him and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Now, we'll come back to the sacrifice and the test in a moment, but it's the same phrase there. Take your son, your only son. But if you know the Genesis story, you'll know that Isaac was not Abraham's only son. He wasn't even the first son. Who was the other son? Ishmael. But yet he says, take your only son, because only son there means your unique son, the special son, the heir. You see, Ishmael was his other son, but Ishmael was not the son of the promise. Ishmael was an illegitimate son. Isaac was the only son in that he was the precious, unique, beloved one, the heir. See, that's what only son, one and only means. Same in John 3, 16. It's not so much about whether the father gave birth to the son. It's about the uniqueness of the son. But we need to keep going with that story in Genesis because actually the more you understand, the more you'll get what John 3.16 is on about. Because here's the thing, right? Genesis 22, remember God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, and sacrifice him. And, and the amazing thing is Abraham actually obeys. And, and, and as you read the story, you, you, you see how the story time slows down to just make you understand what a huge thing this was that Abraham was about to do. And so you, you're almost like walking step by step with Abraham and Isaac up that mountain, knowing full well, Abraham knowing full well, that he was going to have to sacrifice 
his precious son, the son that came to him as a miracle when he was 100 years old. And the other thing about this story was you get the scene where Abraham takes the wood that he was going to use to burn offering, you know, sacrifice his son, and he places the wood on his son, his boy, and makes his son Isaac carry it. So you imagine that painful, painful image as he watches his son walk up that mountain with the very wood that he would have to be sacrificed on. And then it gets even more kind of moving because Isaac asked when they get there, well, here is the wood for the burnt offering, but where is the animal? See, Isaac doesn't know. And can you imagine being Abraham, having to look in your boy's eyes and say, how do you answer that question? Knowing full well that as far as he was concerned, this boy who asked the question was going to have to die because he was the sacrifice. And so he answers, Abraham answers, the Lord would provide, but at that point he still knows, in his mind at least, that he would have to sacrifice his son, his only son, the one he loves. Now the great story, the great news of the story is, of course, it was just a test. It wasn't for real. God does not like people sacrificing children and um, people. So it was a test. And so that is all revealed because as Abraham is about to take the knife and plunge it into his son, his only son, God comes in and stops him. It was a test, a test that Abraham really loved God more than he loved what God gave, even if the gift was the son that he had longed for all his life. And then, of course, the story finishes with God himself providing a substitute. And Abraham has passed the test of faith. Now, that's all in the background. It's important for us to get into that story because when John 3.16 uses that phrase, God gave his one and only son, not only is he talking in the same language as Abraham's one and only son, you see what's going on in John 3.16? You, you see what's going on in the Christmas story? God, in Jesus, giving up his son Jesus was going to do what he didn't and couldn't require Abraham to do. Abraham never had to offer his son, really. But God did. His only son. His most precious, unique, beloved son. Just think for a moment. Can we have any idea of how much, from eternity to eternity, the Father, God the Father, loves the Son? I don't think we have any concept of how much the Father delights in the Son, the Son who's always obeyed Him, always loved Him, always in perfect fellowship with Him. We get a glimpse of it, I think, when we understand that the New Testament talks about, in places like Colossians, that the world was created for the Son, for Jesus, the world, universe, ultimately not created for you and me, it's created for the Son. Just think about that for a moment. Because I don't know if you've ever just kind of taking a step back sometimes and just being marveling at the extravagance of our world, our natural world especially, yeah? I, I, do you ever kind of just kind of pinch yourself and say, wow, there are so many animal species in the world, many of whom we're still discovering. I mean, God didn't have to create so many species. There's so many different sights and sounds to be experienced in the world. You know, there's oceans that we haven't even 
come close to plum, plum, you know, to see the depths of. And there's worlds down there that we have no idea about. I mean, did God have to do that? Of course not. Or you think about the universe and its stars. Do you know there are billions of galaxies? Right? Which means there are trillions of stars. Did the universe have to be that big? Of course not. So why? Why is the world so amazing, so extravagant? Well, one reason is this. Because it was made for Jesus. That's how much the Father loves the Son. I mean, you think about extravagant Christmas gifts, right? Every so often you see Instagram posts of that kid with like, not one Lego thing, but like boxes full of Lego things, right? And you think, wow, that kid is really spoiled. God, the Father, loves the Son so much, He made this world with all its beauty and diversity just to spoil Him. Just to say, look what I can do, and this is all yours. I want to shower you with all the love and creativity of the God of the universe, and I want to give it all to you. And that's not even enough, because I love you so much that I've made such an extravagant world for you. Jesus, my Son, whom I love, my one and only Son, and yet God gave up that son whom he loves so much, whom he's so proud of, who he's so enamored with and delighted with. He gave up that son and he asked that son to do what he would never ask anyone to do, past, present or future, not even Abraham. He made his son carry the wood for his execution all the way to the place of sacrifice. And he didn't stop him this time. Because Jesus carried, and by the way, the son did it willingly. It wasn't like he was abused by the father. The son was completely in sync with his father's will. He chose to obey his father, to be the sacrifice, to die the death on the cross that we deserved as a world in rebellion and rejection of God, to pay for our sins. And that's why God tested Abraham. Not God is not some sort of capricious, naughty God who loves to see if people... No, no. Abraham's story is a preview, you see, a little picture, a little window of what God would one day do through his own son so that we would really appreciate how much he, because he loves us, would give his most beloved for us. Now, how does that augment our reality? It should be obvious, shouldn't it? It totally changes. It redefines what life is about. Don't you see? Life cannot be about what I get from the world I live in. The planet and its resources is not for me to use and exploit and profit from. And especially the people of this world are not for me to use and exploit. And they're certainly not defined by what they add to me or do for me or whether they spark joy in my life, you see. That's not, that cannot be the way we see life in people anymore. No, life is not defined by that. It's defined by love. It's, and it's not sentimental, emotional, fleeting love. It's love shown by sacrifice. You see, once you see the world through God's eyes, life is not what you can do for me. Life is what I can do for you. 
because that's love. When those two volunteer firefighters unfortunately gave their lives, not while fighting fire, but on the way or back from fighting fires and had a car accident. This Christmas, that is, apart from the real meaning of Christmas, of you know, Jesus and so on, that's, in our news, the closest thing to real Christmas. Isn't it? Right? Jesus says, no greater love has anyone than this than to give their life for their friends. And when those two firefighters gave their lives in the... And they're volunteers. They don't get paid for this. Right? As they did their duty to help others. That is way more a picture of what Christmas is about than anything you will see in a shopping center. Or even anything you'll do in your family dinners and lunches. It's about sacrifice. That's what life is about. Now, that really needs to augment our reality if, like me, you sometimes feel like it's just too hard to love people. Yeah, you felt that before? Like, we, we all have people in our lives. It's just so hard to keep loving them. It may be someone really close to you, and that's why it hurts so much. <clears throat> because people can be difficult to love. And when conflict arises, it's painful. I want to stop. I want to pull back. Forgiveness is really, really hard. Reconciliation, that's difficult. Sometimes you feel used, taken for granted, and you just want to stop. Because the more you give, the more it hurts. Well, what would happen if we let the truth of Christmas augment that reality? See, whenever you and I are called to sacrifice ourselves in love for others, even when it hurts, no matter how much it hurts, it cannot compare, can it, with what God already did for us through Jesus. So keep on loving. Keep going, even when it's impossibly hard. Because that's what life is about. Right? Not you for me, but me for you. Final point. What does John 3.16 tell us? Thirdly, anyone can be saved. It says, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. First key word in that sentence, whoever. Whoever means anyone. Whoever means there's no boundaries as to background, race, language, gender, age, Whoever means there's no limitations on how far you've walked away, how many crimes you've committed, how evil you are, how atheistic you are. Whoever means anyone and everyone. You see, anyone can be saved. No one needs to perish because Jesus' death was that big. It had no conditions or limitations in terms of who you are. I mean, even in Jesus' life, you, you know that he both loved the religious and the non-religious. He loved both the moral and the completely immoral. He loved those who were well thought of and loved by others. He loved those who were rejected by society and hated by others. He loved both Jews and non-Jews. And so anyone and everyone who believes can have eternal life. Believe there doesn't just mean I believe in my head, it's true. It's, it's about putting your trust in someone. 
Anyone who puts their trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for their sins, who trusts Him enough to follow them as their Lord, anyone who does that can have eternal life. No boundaries, no limitations, no ifs, no buts, no conditions. Now, I know you know this, but again, let's let this augment our reality. Do you see that there is no one so far gone that God does not love them and wants to save? No one so far gone. And no one that is so far away and so impossible that they cannot turn back to God, believe in Jesus and be saved, no matter how impossible we think it is. Not even the person that you imagine right now is the most tragically evil or lost person. Not even that person. Not even the person that you've maybe tried to, but he, he or she is the one who is the most resistant and hardened. It just seems like any talk about God or Jesus or spirituality just hits a brick wall. Not even that person is so far gone and so impossible that God cannot and does not want to save them. And I just wonder if, as we talk about these kind of people, in your mind, who are you picturing? There's, there's someone in everyone's life, isn't there? That you picture as, no, not that person. Or oh, I've tried, no, no. Or maybe you wouldn't say it that crassly, but really you've even stopped praying for them because it's just too hard. You see, there may be attitudes that we need to today repent of if you're a follower of Jesus because there's some that we've given up on. And John 3.16, let it augment our reality. There is no one that we ought to give up on. No one who is still alive. But maybe you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. You're not really sure where you stand. And you may be thinking, well, can I? Can I come to God? Would God accept me? Does He love me? Maybe you feel like you're too far gone. Or maybe you're just kind of like most Aussies. Yeah, that's good for you. It's just not for me. Right? It has no relevance to my life. Well, no matter who you are, right? Jesus says, whoever believes. That's you too. You too can come to understand God's love for you, trust in Jesus, and have eternal life today. Wouldn't it be great to have a Christmas where it's really personally meaningful for the first time? That's you. Today, decide, tell God, I want to put my trust in Jesus. I want to believe. And you will guaranteed have eternal life. All right, let me conclude. Does Christmas change anything? Oh, yes, it does, doesn't it? It changes everything. If we just let this thing, this truth of Christmas augment our reality. So this year, what do you want to do? I want you to... God wants you to take John 3, 16 and 17, these very familiar verses, and augment the way you see the world. Every single person in the world that you come across, not just this Christmas, but every day of the week, every hour of the day, remember that God loves them, God gave for them, God saves them. See, this is not something, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you can hold to yourself, can you? Like, how can you hold this to yourself, especially at Christmas? Like this is a world that only sees Christmas in terms of buying more and holidaying more and eating more. And God is saying to this world at Christmas, don't you see, I love you. I gave my one and only son for you and I want you to be saved. How can we hold that news to ourselves? Because the majority of the people that we come across just don't know it. Now at Swek at our church, We want to help you do that, and you already know that Christmas is happening, so it's not too late to invite. 
three days, two days' time on Christmas Eve, right, if you and your family and friends who don't know Jesus come here, they will not only sing some great carols, and our band has worked really hard, right, heaps of carols, but they will hear the message about how much God loves them. And they will be called to turn and put their trust in God, in Jesus, so that they can be saved. That, that's going to be clear Christmas Eve. It's going to be clear Christmas Day. Right? So invite. It's not too late. But you know what? I want to preview something else because next year we're going to keep going with this. We're going to give you lots of opportunities. Next year we're going to, in our February invitation month, be asking and answering three big questions. These are the questions. Where can I find peace in an anxious world? What am I missing in life? How can I be fully known and fully loved? Now, we design these questions so that you can take these questions and ask the people around you. And it's not going to seem like you're having a spiritual conversation, is it? But we want you to be able to say to someone at work, hey, can I just ask you a question? I'd love to know your opinion. How would you answer the question, how can I be fully known and fully loved? Do you feel like you're fully known and fully loved by anyone in this world? Who is it? Tell me about that. Right? They're probably going to give you their answer. Your job is to listen. And they're probably going to ask you back. What do you think? And it's going to be really easy to say, hey, you know what? That question's going to be answered at my church just during the month of February. Someone's going to come and talk from the Bible. I, I'd love to hear the answer. You want to come with me and we can check it out. Do you see what this is what it's designed for? It's, it's supposed to give you an opportunity before February to ask the questions so that you can say, hey, by the way, you know that question I asked you? Come along with me because we're going to hear someone's answer and this person's going to try and tell us from the Bible. All right? So don't miss that opportunity. This is just a preview. So you get an opportunity to do that even now. Invite someone along. So John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let's just pray right now with me. Pray with me that God would now allow that to superimpose our reality.